Podcast, episode number 155. This is Greg Duncan, and I'm alone again. Almost. Almost alone. None of our regular co-hosts are here. Uh, um, Angela, if you're listening, Angela was going to be here, hopefully, but I forgot to include her on the, the meeting invite. So it's totally my bad that it wasn't on her calendar and she couldn't schedule that. Um, we're going to make that up to you, and we'll talk about that later in the show. But I'm actually not alone. Because I've got a great co-host or a guest on this week, somebody who we should have had on long ago. Backstory is, is I asked Angela and the, all the radio hosts, I say, hey, who are we going to have on for 2018? Who do we need to have on? And Angela like, jumped up and down and says, you know what, Greg? There's a certain segment of the TFS and um, VSTS, the ALM MVP population that is underrepresented in our show. And I said, what's that? And he said, um, the better 1%. I'm like, okay, who's the better 1%? The females, the women of ALM MVPs. Anna Russo and Anna Inkovec. I totally butchered your name there, Anna. And at that point, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. Because I've only, we've only had two women on all of the radio TFSs ever. We, Angela and Anisha. And that's just not going to work. So I uh, immediately reached out to uh, Ms. Russo, who we've had on, we've mentioned on the show a number of times. I actually met her in a previous life many years ago and forgotten about it because I'm old. Um, and she jumped up and down and says, okay, yes, I will be on. I will represent the better 1%. Here's Anna's uh, biography, biography, bi- bi- bio, easier for me to say. Since 2008, Anna Russo has worked with a variety of clients to improve their software quality and processes by properly implementing Microsoft Team Foundation Server, Test Manager, and Visual Studio tools. Anna is an ALM MVP specializing in testing and continuous quality. Anna is all about qualitivity. Anna, welcome to the show, finally. Thank you, Greg. I'm glad to be on. <laughs> it's very exciting. And as I was saying earlier, is we're going to have you back. And we'll have Angela back, and we'll have the other Anna, the Anna too back, um, and we'll do a you know the and we'll, that the show title the better one percent. We'll have the <laughs> three of you on, it. and um, we'll, we'll give you that representation that has been lacking so far. Yeah, I think it's uh, greatly overdue, and uh, there's not many of us, but uh, I think it's important for us to share our voices and what we're passionate about, and we've been doing this for a while, so. All three of us. Uh, you said 2008, and it just made me think that it's been a decade. <laughs> <laughs> That's That just really settles in on me. You're saying you're old, and I feel like, wow, a decade. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time. What was the earliest TFS that you used? TFS 2005. I uh, The poorly, first one. Yeah, I... Uh, was uh, I failed miserably at convincing my coworkers that it was the best thing since sliced bread, um, and uh, and then I got a job uh, doing it uh, for TFS 2008 um, was the first real version um, when I was working in 2008 implementing from scratch. Um, so yeah, I failed miserably and I got a job because I spent so much time trying to convince everybody that they should be using it, and no one wanted to use it. <laughs> So Funny way passionate. to get a job. Yeah, it was a side <laughs> hobby, but I had to spend so much time convincing folks that I got really good at it. <laughs> That's great. So uh, let's let's talk. We've got a number of questions. Our listeners, you guys know how I set up the questions and stuff, and we've already totally gone off the rail on it. Um, I want to jump ahead, and let's talk about your MVP journey. 
and, and you know, you've been you've been awarded it six times, right? Yep, six years now. Okay, so what's that MVP journey been like for you? Um, I think initially I had not really thought of it. Um, being an MVP, what it meant, what the significance of it was. I just loved what I did. Um, and to me, that was the most important thing. And I was passionate about helping people um, implement the tooling. And so it was kind of just this afterthought. And so um, there was about four years from when I started doing working as an ALM consultant to when I became an MVP. Um, but along the way, um, I was recognized for my potential and I was able to give feedback um, on uh, the testing tools. And it was, you know, uh, feedback that was pretty strong and contrary to what they were hearing from the rest of the group. Um, but it was pretty consistent with what users were telling them. And so um, Chuck Sterling mentored me along and uh, uh, he gave me some tips along the way of things like, if I Google your name and I can't find you, that is not a good sign. And I was like, wow, I've never even Googled my name before. Um, and so <laughs> he he did spend a significant amount of time. And also my boss at the time, Chris Menegay, spent a significant amount of time mentoring me of what it took to be an MVP and meet the criteria. Um, and then I was nominated Um and uh, and then in 2012, I was recognized and awarded as an MVP. So wait, so you had a strong opinion, different from Microsoft about <laughs> I, doesn't that qualify you as an MVP? Isn't that like a requirement? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, <laughs> the only thing was is that at the time, uh, all the other MVPs were developers or had development backgrounds. Yeah, and so and you're I, coming in from it from what background? A testing background. That's right. And so I was the, you know, black sheep of the group. And they're like, what is this foreign language you're speaking? Um, and, you know, it's pretty convenient for developers to ignore testers. <laughs> um, but once the MTM tools came out in 2010, there was a significant investment in that area. And uh, there was a lot of feedback from users. And um, uh, most of the feedback the product team gets comes from the MVPs and it's real world in the field feedback. However, um, when it came to testing, uh, there wasn't as much feedback that aligned with the testers, and it was because there wasn't any testing representation in the group. And uh, mm -hmm. I think the unique, most unique part of the, and shocking part of the journey was that I was the first uh, female <laughs> in the U.S. to be nominated as an MVP. Um, I didn't know that going in, but when I was awarded in my first MVP summit, I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> uh, I'm the first one, really? Um, so it, it was, it's a great honor and it's a great privilege and being at the MVP Summit, uh, it is the greatest meeting of the minds. It's the, the most amazing geek fest. Uh, I've never met such a group of people that were, have been so passionate and, you know, um, uh, so really into what it is that they're doing. They really stand uh, above the crowd. And so it's really neat. And I've heard from others that not all MVP groups are as unique as ours. So it's it's an amazing privilege to be part of the group. Yeah, I've heard that same thing about the other MVP groups and stuff. They, you know, I categorize the ALM MVPs as just, you know, brutally honest. Yes, <laughs> that we are. <laughs> you really have to have a thick skin in our group because we, we have we have some interesting characters. <laughs> 
And people who have been MVPs for a long time. So that's yeah, right. that's that's right. Um, but <laughs> no. I think that's an advantage of the group, and that's what sets us apart. And I think that's what makes the product unique and makes it of the quality that it is, because it's such a, a diverse group um, that contributes um, their expertise and what they do on the field and their passion. Uh, and all this positive energy that goes towards the product. So I think it's, it's amazing. So what's the, like the downside of your journey? Is there, has there been some sort of frowns or, or less than happy moments being an MVP? Yeah, I think um, the criteria most recently for the MVP program uh, has changed and there's this focus and emphasis on DevOps um, mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we've transitioned from this ALM to DevOps um, as if it's mutually exclusive when it's really not. <laughs> right. <laughs> I feel like DevOps is part ALM meets, I don't know, uh, you know, uh, uh, IT. Uh, and right. so I think ALM is still there, but I think DevOps has kind of overshadowed it um, just because it's the trending buzzword. Um, and it has its place. However, it doesn't detract from ALM and the criteria, the MVP criteria was recently changed. And I, I mean, uh, Angela and I reviewed it not too long ago, a couple months ago, and we both deduced based off of this criteria, neither of us would be part of the ALM MVP program. And I think the MVP program needs to do a little bit better in defining not just DevOps, but what we know exists as the core of who we are, which is ALM. Um, And uh, a lot of it was very development-centric. And when you're so development-centric, it takes people like me who are testers out of the equation. And there's nothing in DevOps that says, outside of the title of it, um, that excludes, you know, the word quality or testing out of it. Um, But uh, I think we need to work on that. And I think we need to do better. And and also giving opportunities where uh, underrepresented minorities uh, can be part of the group because part of that criteria is part of an underlying issue. And Angela, she's great about taking ideas and just taking them a little bit further. She had brought up not only were we underrepresenting uh, and dis, you know um, excluding certain groups from the MVP criteria, but what is it? How does that translate into the product and what's not being represented in the product. And we started talking and there's a lot of areas in the product that are not represented. And so I think there's a lot of room for opportunity uh, people wise and expertise wise for us to open and have a more diverse group. Um, And so I would say that's probably the biggest down that it really hits you hard. The realization that after, you know, 10 years, this is where we're at. Right. And so Three out of like 200 women or 200 men. Uh, Yeah, 300 women, I wish. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That's not what the user population is like. And I feel like it should be much more in sync with the user population of, you know, TFS and BSTS. So again, jumping ahead, what advice would you give a woman out there who is in a development side or the testing side or, you know, quality assurance side or even the ops side on it, what advice would you give them? Or product management or program management or business analysis or support. Product ownership. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. There's a lot of women in those roles. Um, I would say uh, don't underestimate your accomplishments because I think women 
uh, in general are very hard on themselves. <laughs> and uh, we set this false double standard. And uh, you sh- women should just apply. Um, because Angela and I uh, were both flagged as candidates, potential candidates as M- for being an MVP. And we were mentored. So it's not something mm-hmm. that happened overnight. I mean, for me, it was four years. So I think you shouldn't discredit what you've done, what you're passionate about, um, because there is a path, although it's not, that's another thing about the MVP program. It's not very clear about the fact that there is sort of a mentorship program that happens before you end up in the MVP program. And it should be more clear that, and disclose that there is this path that you can have. And the unfortunate part is, uh, Angela and I were talking about this, so it should feel like Angela's here, uh, <laughs> uh, is that women don't get as many opportunities to speak at conferences. You know, if you, you submit your talks and there isn't as much representation, there isn't as much opportunities. And so when you look at the MVP criteria, um, we all contribute in different ways. Like Angela, she does a lot more speaking engagements and I do a lot more tooling. So we all have our strengths. And so we help people. Uh, lots of people, but we do it in different ways. And we should be able to recognize different contributions and, you know, the impact that they have on our community. And ultimately, what it comes down to is what we're most passionate about, which is, you know, TFS and VSTS. So I think that should be acknowledged. But I I would say don't underestimate (laughs) Um, being passionate about something and your contributions to the community. Uh, So you have to stand up and speak up and raise your hand. That was funny. I think one of the first shows we had Angela on, we talked about the imposter syndrome. And, I, and the, the fact is, actually, we're all imposters. I, I'm faking it every day. Yes. You know, <laughs> our industry and this stuff moves too fast to not be an imposter and learning as you go. Um, so the advice I'm hearing is that, you know, believe in yourself. Yes, absolutely. Don't worry if you if you think you're an imposter and you're faking it, you're no different than every other ALM MVP. Put yourself forward. Uh, you can even nominate yourself to be an MVP. Uh, but okay, so yeah, and so, I think that's again, believe in that's yourself. A great point. You can nominate yourself, and uh, a lot of folks don't know that. <laughs> that's really important uh, because you, maybe somebody may not have heard of you through the traditional channels. And so uh, I do think that believing in yourself and uh, if you think you've got what it takes, nominate yourself. Somebody will get back to you, <laughs> let you know one way or the other. And even if you're not a developer, probably actually better if you're not a developer. Get that underrepresented um, sample in and use cases in, and you know, because if you're a developer, you're quote unquote competing with the majority. But if you're on the using TFS for other things beyond just pure writing code, checking in code, uh, that kind of stuff, then you're up underrepresented, and that way you will stand out more. Yeah, and uh, I think that's important for not only the group itself to hear a diverse set of experiences and expertise in other fields, but for the product itself. We all benefit when we contribute um, a different point of view, and we have plenty of developers. (laughs) 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 We have plenty of them. And so – and. I think the reality is, is we all see women in other roles, not predominantly in development, but they're just as important. Uh, it's uh, de- software development is a team sport. And so 
uh, I think that all groups uh, should have an opportunity to be represented. So there is, is there a negative feedback loop happening though? You, you're not able, you're not represented in the speeches and the talking and as much. So you're not represented in the MVP and because you're not an MVP, your, your, your talks aren't being accepted at shows. Is that a negative feedback loop going on or? Yeah. I think that they call that in the development world, a circular reference. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, uh, it is. It has a domino effect. Um, and it's outside of the group as well. And it's also within our group um, because, you know, uh, there's a cultural shift that has to change uh, because our, our group is international. I find that the European folks are far more ahead of us in the States um, mm -hmm. as far as women being part of software development and having roles and speaking roles and speaking at conferences, they don't seem to feel as much of um, the divide between, you know, uh, being a, a female versus a male. Um, but here in the United States, I think it's a lot tougher. Um, and I think it's more of a cultural thing than anything else. And I think once we understand the little things that we're doing that add up to women not being represented, um, it'll help us define the path of how we can do better. How do we do that, you know, as a, you know, Southern California white male veteran guy, um, how do I impact, how can I help fix that or, or support, what can I do? Um, so I think the first thing is <laughs> uh, recognizing our blind spots. Um, uh -huh. I think the there's a lot of things that we do that, you know, quite frankly, uh, culturally, uh, that we do to women, uh, such as, you know, uh, bypassing women when they raise their hand or, you know, uh, interrupting women, um, not giving women enough credit for what it is that they do or ideas that they come up with. Um, I think uh, also just uh, reaching out. Um, is just a simple thing. Just the acknowledgement of <laughs> there's a there's a female here. If there's a female anywhere in the ranks or in the room, uh, I guarantee you it was not an easy path or journey to get there. And so um, we we should be acknowledging women that have gotten even just to that point. Um, and so uh, more practical things, I guess, from your perspective, you're doing the radio mm -hmm. TFS. Um, you know, uh, just uh, acknowledging, you know, like things that Angela does or things that I do, you know, we write blog posts, we create tools, um, we talk about different things. Um, I think the acknowledgement is a big thing. And that cascades into, you know, allowing to be uh, to speak on these topics. And then that translates into being recognized. We're recognized within our group. But it's harder to get recognition outside of that when um, the guys aren't in our group aren't amplifying our contributions. Um, so, uh, and it's okay. Uh, we still are around. <laughs> We're not going anywhere. <laughs> I'm sure some will think, when are they going away? Are they still here? Um, <laughs> but it's mainly because of our, you know, perseverance and persistence more than anything else and that we're passionate about what we do. And so just I think the recognition goes a long way. Um, I think the official terminology for all of this is just what we call an unconscious bias. Um, you know, the little things that we're doing that, you know, when we as women do work, I think people don't realize that there is this emotional tax 
that we have to deal with on top of doing our job. Some of us do this a little bit better than others, which is, you know, create boundaries and go, yeah, I'm not going to allow that to affect who I am, what I care about. Um, and that's why we're probably more recognized than others. But it's really probably one of the most things that I feel like has made me successful to this point is I'm able to create healthy boundaries of not allowing everyone's criticism to uh, affect who I am as a person. Um, but unfortunately, I can't tell you how many times I've been the person who's been ignored or been passed over or laughed at or had embarrassing comments said about or sexist comments or interrupted. Um, and for most, you know, it takes a toll. Um, and, you know, for some of us, we're able to move beyond that and say, you know, why is that necessary? This should be a professional workplace and we should be able to move beyond that. But until we address the unconscious bias of how women are attacked at an unprofessional level, we're not going to be able to move on to the next point, which is the acknowledgement and credit. So hmm. we ha there's a lot of work to do. And I think the thing that bothers me the most is that when women get attacked, it's most of the time at a professional workplace, which is it's from your peers. It's one thing to be attacked from your enemy or a competitor, but it's right. quite another. Uh, it's so sad when it happens from your peers and colleagues. It's it's I don't know. It's a whole nother level of sad because um, you're supposed to be on the same team and right. it doesn't feel like that. And uh, it's unacceptable, period. You know, that's. I, I keep th I'm thinking back and I'm wondering, you know, have I done it? When have I done it? Um, and I, I keep thinking like, no, I'm I'm, you know, me, I'm a Gen Xer, you know, uh, and I was raised in, you know, women's right era and, you know, uh, these kind of thoughts and that I don't do that. And then then immediately I think, OK, that just means I'm not seeing when I am doing it, maybe because of that unconscious bias. And so I, I, I think it back to my you know past female coworkers and everything. I don't. That's hard as, as a guy. I don't see that I have ever done that. But I guess I should ask them. You should. I think most of the time women are silent. Um, uh -huh. I'm Italian, so I was brought up in a pretty boisterous family, um, <laughs> and so I speak up. But not a lot of women don't, um, and it's unfortunate because just because they're silent doesn't mean that they're accepting of it. And the unfortunate reality is in technology, we think we're on the bleeding edge of everything, you know, with not only with technology, but with our thought process that we're progressive. Right. right. But when it comes to women, we're not. And the numbers don't lie. Hmm. So we need to do better. <laughs> and there's, It's just I think it's an education is a part. Um, it starts off in schools. I mean, uh, when you're getting your college degree like mine in computer information systems, uh, we don't talk about this. Um, and, uh, we need to talk about it, not because it affects women directly, because it's men also having an impact on women. That's, there's the social aspect of technology that needs to be ad addressed. And I did have actually a class on how, you know, uh, technology impacts society, um, but not the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's an important conversation to have. And I think that the only way is by talking about it, um, being educated about it. And I think um, it's not just women talking about it, but I think men need to meet us halfway because um, we're not the problem. We're just a result of the problem. 
And so mm-hmm. um, men need to meet us halfway and be at the table to come up with the solutions. It's um, uh, And are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Uh, oh, okay. I, I Sorry. Just, I, I, that was the end of my thought. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it just got really quiet there for a second. So, okay. Then listeners, here's something, you know, for you. You're very likely a male. Um, this really wasn't where I planned on this show going, but I'm glad it is because it's better than what we had planned. Um, listeners, I want you guys to, to, to honestly take a second, do some honest reflection on, you know, your behavior that uh, even unconscious behavior that the next time you're in a meeting, you're in a sprint planning meeting, um, or backlog grooming. And if there's a female on the team, watch what happens and see if she is stomped on, interrupted, um, uh, um, minimalized, her ideas aren't accepted. Just look at that and see if that truly is kind of happening by yourself or by some of your peers. And then think about how maybe you can make a change, a simple change. It's all iterative. We live in an iterative world. Uh, and, and Yeah, you got to start somewhere. Talk, exactly. Talk to your teammates. The other side too is that <laughs> – if you are doing it, or if you see another teammate, you know, even try to put the, the gender aside. You, you are a team, all right? You are humans. A human shouldn't minimalize, shouldn't interrupt, shouldn't trivialize, trivialize another human, all right? But see if your human filter is different, if it's a female human or a male human. Is that stupid? No, I think it's important. And if you don't know, if you really can't recognize it, I would just say ask any female. And you'll, pre- you'll get pretty consistent feedback, I bet. Um, okay. But I think that's important. If it's not, uh, you know, uh, very obvious, uh, just ask and y- you'll hear feedback. And it, I think it's important to just listen. You know, as I, I was thinking earlier how I said, oh, I've, I don't see that I've ever done it. Well, you, you know that, that, that uh, poker saying? Um, there's always a sucker in the room. And if you don't see that sucker, you're, you're it. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think back to my statement, it's like, oh, shit, I suck. I think that um, uh, there's a lot of factors that play into it. If it was just a silver bullet, it would be easy for us. But because there's so many dimensions to it and it plays itself out in so many different ways, um, uh, it's a complex problem. And so um, – even uh, problems that we think shouldn't be complex that are predictable or you know possible, like uh, a woman choosing to have a family. We're still trying to figure those things out in our society. Um, other societies have figured it out better than us, but it's not an easy problem. And so the more complex the problem is, the more we need to talk about it, be educated on it, and as you were saying, make improvements to it over time. All right. So let's let's talk about some of your work and some of the things that 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 you have done. Um, Me? Work? First of all, <laughs> yeah. you've got a lot of uh, TFX or VSTS extensions. Yes. What, what what are those? What what kind of extensions do you create? Um, I have uh, quite a few of them. They're just iterative over different versions. Um, but my main uh, tool, the first one I created was the ability to bulk copy test cases. Um, there was a way to always copy work items one by one. And prior to test cases being introduced, uh, there wasn't really a need to do it in bulk because for you to you know, copy a requirement or a user story or a task or a bug, 
it's kind of an exception and rare. I mean, you needed it and you would do it on this a one-off. And so the singular ability to copy work items was there, but to do it in bulk really wasn't there. And I think the biggest difference is because test cases are more of an artifact like code and they live a very long time, whereas all the other work items are short-lived. And so um, I created the mechanism to be able to just basically what you do in right mouse click copy work item and just in bulk. So you run a query um, and then the main function of it is to copy for test cases from one sprint to another. So basically you are able to keep track of what you're testing from one sprint to the next. And so it also changes the iteration path for you. And some of the other things it does is just bells and whistles. Um, but folks asked me to copy things like attachments and links. Um, and so it, it does that as well. And then uh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, uh, my other tool is uh, a nifty little tool. Uh, I don't know. I think it's one of my favorite tools, if I'm allowed to have a favorite, which is um, just saving testers time and creating test cases. So the feedback I hear is that there's a lot of data entry for creating test cases. And, um, and I think part of the reason is because the acceptance criteria field really isn't used as the premise for test cases. And so I have a simple little utility that just parses the acceptance criteria from the user story and automatically creates them as stub work cases. And basically um, the test cases exist so that there's more of an alignment between your user story acceptance criteria and what it is that you're testing. That, I, I got to tell you, is brilliant. Thank you. It's that, yeah, that, those kind of little things. I'm finding that now, unfortunately, we use another work item tool, version one here at work. And, and we have the same kind of issue there, though, is that, you know, I want to see the, the acceptance criteria in the story because it's an important part of the story. But then you also want user acceptance tests so you can individually pass or fail each one of those tests. And then it becomes a duplicative issue. And so it's like you end up not doing one over the other. Whereas this is kind of the best of almost both worlds uh, for, and done in TFS. You do it in the acceptance criteria and then you run NS tool and it will create those stub tests for you. So again, you get the best of both worlds kind of. Yeah, and it gives That's, you traceability on the pass-fail rate, right? Um, and it also exactly. gives you the discipline of, you know, I find a lot of folks don't create acceptance criteria because they don't see the value in it. But when you mm -hmm. know it's tied to other artifacts, people see the value and are more likely to use it. Um, and it also helps build good discipline into why quality matters right from the get-go of when you're creating your user story. Yeah, and, and you know, if it's... If it's hard, if it's repetitive, we don't do it. So this makes makes part of that repetitiveness go away because we're all lazy. <laughs> well, okay. Yes, it makes it so easy. Um, and that was really important for me. And so uh, when someone complained about something, I really listened. I was like, you know what? I think I can automate that. And, um, and so, <laughs> uh, are you sure you're not a developer? You, that's, a, that's the, you know, the, 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 you know, guiding principle of develop. I'll do it manually once. I'll do it manually twice. Third time. Oh, hell I'm automating this. <laughs> that's right. I am not a full-time developer. I, uh, I play one on TV on the side on the weekends <laughs> in my not so free time. <laughs> Uh, it's hard, actually. When I put, you're gonna find this amusing. When I put my development hat on, uh, like some of these tools, like the bulk copy test cases tool, 
just because of how um, the infrastructure was exposed in the TFS API framework, uh, it took me a lot of research. I think it literally took me a year to create this tool. Yeah. So you can tell from my knack, I'm not, this is not my, (laughs) this is not my expertise and discipline, but it was, it was a challenge for me. Um, But what, you know, motivated me the most was all of the user feedback. And so um, I thought it was really important. And you can see from the downloads how many, you know, thousands of people it's helped. And so that's all the motivation I need is, uh, you know, uh, users needing help and the, you know, the motivation to do the right thing. So. Um, what, what are these written in? Just, I'm interested as a C-sharp. myself. Okay. They're WPF apps or WinForms or? Uh, no, they're WPF apps. And I'm using Telerik controls because I don't know how to do that either. <laughs> so people often comment, your utilities look so nice. And I go, thank Telerik because I didn't do any of it. <laughs> no, that is smart. That's not, don't degrade yourself. See, you're doing it to yourself. <laughs> yes. Don't degrade yourself. On That is why reinvent the damn wheel. If you can get right. a tool that makes your stuff look great and you can focus on your business logic, then you are doing the right thing. Yeah. And if it weren't for Telerik controls, <laughs> uh, uh, honestly, uh, I probably wouldn't have been able to do as much as I did because they really just break it down for anyone. Even a tester like me can do it. So that's props to them. Right. And, and, no, that's, uh, you know, I, I am the worst UI designer. I, I'm all my UIs are all fugly, you know, functional, but <laughs> damn ugly. <laughs> Thank you for mansplaining uh, the, <laughs> why we still have UIs look the way they do today. <laughs> so one thing I wanted to make sure that we talked about is, is the evolution of MTM, the Microsoft Test Manager. Um, I, as a longtime TFS guy too, I installed and used in production TFS 2005 and every version since on it and from the dev side, not as much of the testing side. Um, but I've watched that evolution of MTM. First of all, let's, where, where is testing in TFS today? The, the user interface, what, the, what a human uses in testing. Um, so having it on the web is probably the most significant change that TFS has made. Um, and that makes it not only accessible to manual testers, but business analysts that have to do user acceptance testing or product managers or product owners. Um, but it also makes it accessible to developers. Um, so that little utility I created, um, the reason uh, I like it so much is not only do I get feedback that testers are using it, but developers are using it. Um, it's because it also allows them to um, use the web part of the tool that's dedicated to testing in a very simple and straightforward manner. Um, so I think that's the most significant change, um, moving away from MTM into the test hub and uh, TFS and VSTS is um, that it's much more accessible and front and center along with all the other pillars like code and work and builds and release. So it's, it's like you said, it's a good thing. Oh yeah. It's a great thing. Um, It's uh, and I think DevOps kind of takes it a step further and uh, makes it more of a continuous thing. So uh, I think it's all, it's all heading in a great direction. You know, it's funny. I wanted to, I, I forgot. I wanted to mention that we talked about DevOps. We talk about DevOps here on the show a lot. And, you know, that's, 
again, that unconscious almost bias that devs, lots of guys, ops as in like IT and stuff, lots of guys. With ponytails um, and earrings, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and even when we talk about DevOps, it, it, it's all like, oh, yeah, you do testing. We do, you know, um, automated testing, unit testing, integration testing, yada, yada, yada. But I really, I don't see it mentioned in any of the DevOps story. Yeah, there's a little maybe testing box and all the circles and stuff on it. But, you know, the the human tester part of DevOps, Dev test sec ops or Dev test ops, dev. That's what we should. Um, that's a story that's not being told much. No, we talk about the continuous integration of things and doing it in smaller iterations and batches. And the next evolution of that is uh, how can you uh, continuously uh, embed the quality into it, right? Um, and what it really means is you know, developers accepting responsibility for their contributions to quality or their lack thereof. Because when you do things in smaller iterations, uh, it kind of exaggerates the flaws a little bit more and brings them to the surface. And so, um, you know, and teams evolve. So it's not something that's just going to happen overnight. But uh, I do see the future of it um, and DevOps forcing more of the conversation because of this highly iterative cycle of bringing the flaws to the surface and, you know, uh, it's more important in that kind of cycle to um, make sure quality is this continuous part. It's not just a, when we get to testing, it's upfront from the user story to the unit testing, to every build being of quality and the automated testing and the deployments being of quality so that environments are not down. Um, and so uh, it's not just the testing bug. What we know is the traditional um, role of, you know, assuring quality, but it really takes it to this whole other level of continuous quality. How, how does that human tester fit into that cycle? What's, what's something that you have seen? Let's say you have a three-week sprint cycle like VSTS has. Uh, you know, you're writing the code, you're doing the CI, you're doing the, the CD, the, the continuous deployment, continuous integration stuff. Where do, yeah, how does that human fit in? Uh, you mean human as a tester? Yeah. Um, I think it, it, it plays different. It plays out in different roles, um, and uh, I don't think it's just the one role. It's more of you know, like the business analyst making sure the you know requirements are of quality. That's like the first entry point um, because things either go downhill or uphill from there, right? Um, and uh, so I think the role does exist. It just transpires itself differently. Um, and what I mean by that is when developers start to have a vested interest in their quality by writing unit tests, the manual tester may not have to do some of those things. But it depends at what layer, you know, developers are testing at. Are really they testing unit testing at the code level, which is, you know, are they doing integration testing, which is between systems or between layers? And then are they doing, you know, testing at the UI level? So there's different levels of testing and then also performance and load testing. And so not all of that is going to be automated overnight. So there needs to be a clear distinction of what you can automate and what the developers can contribute in automation. And then whatever can't be automated, there still needs to be a manual tester um, to be uh, uh, to compensate for what's not being touched upon. I, I think the reason why there's still a role is because 
you can't just create a clone army of testers. That doesn't make sense business-wise. And so um, automation is key, but developers need to own that. And some somewhere in between that is automated testers. So testers who not only have the subject matter expertise um, or domain expertise, but also have the ability to write code or scripts um, with automated tooling. So there's still a role, although some people in the industry say that's it for testers. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> I think developers from the inception have been wanting that to come true and still hasn't come to fruition. Yeah. If it get, if we get rid of the testers, then the developers have to shoulder all of the responsibility. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. <laughs> that's not going to happen. Uh, so that's, <laughs> that's why, uh, you know, as a tester, my general nature is probably a little bit more skeptical, um, <laughs> uh, which is a good thing. Um, right. it, it kind of makes me who I am. Uh, and so uh, I think that everyone has a role in. I feel like there's plenty of room in the sandbox. So why are we arguing about it? So we're getting close to the end of the show. And one of the things I wanted to start doing with guests is one of the, the coolest thing about having a guest on is, is having our listeners, you know, get to know you. So we're going to do some, you know, things that we haven't done before. Um, it, it may be stupid and this may not work. And Anna, you may be the only one we ever do this with. But uh, one of the things I, I want to help our listeners get to know you is like, what, what's your guilty pleasure? Chocolate. Yeah. Uh, I was, and, and what do you do? What, what is the fun? What is the fun in Anna's life? <laughs> before kids or after kids? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'll answer both. So before I had kids, I loved cycling. Um, mm -hmm. So love riding bike trails. Um, and so that that's what I'd love to do for fun. Uh, it was a challenge. It was great. It's scenic. I just loved it. I could zone out. Uh, it was uh, it was challenging. So I really loved that. After kids, uh, I uh, enjoy sleep now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how many you, kids do you have? I have twin boys. And oh. so, yeah, uh, I wasn't sure if you were aware of that or not. <laughs> no. Yes. So uh, uh, I, I enjoy sleep now. They're teething. And so um, they they wake up in the middle of the night and you go, sleep now? And they don't really coordinate amongst themselves very well. One will wake up the other and good Lord. <laughs> And so I have this whole appreciation for uh, a sleep. <laughs> I've got a my, – my daughter has a three-and-a-half-year-old um, girl and baby girl twins as well now. So um, – Wow. <laughs> I, I can – I can kind of hear you now. Not I have not lived the twin life, but I'm living it vicariously through her, so I can feel your pain. <laughs> uh, does she have boys? Yeah, uh, two boys, two girls? Nope, all three girls. Oh, all three girls! Wow, so it's yeah. the reverse yeah. of me. I have all men in the household, <laughs> which is like, <laughs> how is this different from work? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> We're the ladies of my life. This is why I talk about Angela a lot. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, my last kid, my son, will be moving out, you know, knock on wood, a year and a half. He'll be out of college and in the Army as an officer. But uh, That's great. Yeah, that, that whole – I've got that, that you know – Light at the end of the tunnel, which is hopefully not a train coming towards me, um, is there. So 
You can see it. I can't see it yeah, yet. Yeah, I can I, see it. <laughs> I have 18 years to go <laughs> or 16 years to go. It depends. But my, yeah, my, my, my advice to you is that the empty nesting thing is real. <laughs> that that really happens. My daughter had been out for a while and my son went off to basic training and then was deployed to Afghanistan for a while. And that, you know, when the house is now empty, that is a real weird feeling um, that takes a while to adjust to as a parent. Uh, unfortunately, though, when they come back, you start missing the empty nesting feeling and you start looking forward to when they're actually going to finally really, really, really be gone. <laughs> but see, that's the great thing is that it sounds like you should be proud of your kids and where they've got into in life and you did all the right things. And so I think it's just another milestone. And so um, not that it's easy, but uh, it's like good Good for you. Good job. <laughs> it's like I feel like when parents, when their kids graduate from college, are really sad. It's like they graduated from college. This is a huge accomplishment, and so go you. Parents should be given more credit for that. <laughs> uh, I don't know about that. You know, again, it's like in spite of me, in spite of the parenting, they did great. Imposter syndrome. Hello, I'm. <laughs> I'm sure there's some correlation and there's, it's by no coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> so time to wrap up the show. Is there something I should have asked you um, that was in our list or wasn't in our list? Uh, should have asked you, but I didn't. Uh, let's see here. No, I think we, Oh yes. There was one new thing uh, or one thing on the list, which was advice to testers oh, okay. uh, uh, about the future. Um, and it's funny. I feel like <laughs> this kind of overlaps with uh, women in technology, but I guess just, you know, uh, new testers, because there really isn't formal education for testing. It's kind of you figure out how to do your job on the job. Um, I think one of the most important things, and this is something I say to women as well, but just by coincidence, it's uh, not letting developers, you know, be intimidating because um, <laughs> they have a tendency to do so. Um, and I think staying focused for new testers, having just a focus on um, being an advocate for the product and for users, and ultimately, which something that's not talked about is this translates into the bottom line for products. Um, and uh, I think it's important for testers. Uh, I think the future of testers staying focused on things like that will ultimately change where the industry um, has come from to where it's going. And I think that's just really important. And the tooling, because for testers, really, there's just been a real shortage of options and choices for tooling. And so I think TFS is doing a great job in staying ahead of that. Um, but I think tooling has made a significant change. We've moved from Word documents and Excel spreadsheets as being the standard. You laugh. You laugh because you know yeah, it's true, uh -huh. right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, to centralized databases. Uh, wow. You know. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I think that uh, uh, new testers should make the most of that. And for what I see, younger testers have been much more open-minded to that versus testers that have been in the industry for a while. So I think that's a great change to embrace. Um, and uh, uh, I'm excited about it because I think. Uh, the new generation has gives me a lot of hope in doing things the right way from the get-go. We've kind of just been fumbling along and testing before this. <laughs> I think that's it. Where can, where can people get a hold of you? 
Um, so LinkedIn is probably the best way. Um, and uh, Twitter, those are probably the two best ways to get a hold of me. Probably Twitter more than LinkedIn. Um, my Twitter handle is Anabots with one N. Um, I think you also linked to that. Uh, you had a link on yes, that. Yes, I'll have the link in the show notes. Yep. yep. That's probably the best way. Um, you can uh, tweet me and I can send private messages, but um, it's just an easier way to filter through the noise for me anyhow. Right, right. Awesome. Well, and I really appreciate you being on the show. Well, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you for listening. Remember, you can get a hold of us at RadioTFS at Outlook.com, uh, on Twitter at RadioTFS, or on Facebook as well, slash RadioTFS, voicemail. You know, I, I do this voicemail thing. I'm not going to read the number. You guys got to go to the website and get the number from there. It's always there. It's even in the show notes, in the podcast, whatever catcher, whatever listening to what you're listening to it, the the Phone number is there as well. Give us a call. If your voicemail is safe for work, we'll play it on the air. You can be like a, a guest, guest, guest show host. Um, stickers. Now, Sticker Mule, which has been hosting our stickers, no longer actually has a marketplace for stickers. That doesn't mean you are SOL. I will still send you stickers. Um, RJ Book, I, I've got stickers on order for you. I'll be sending them to you. Uh, there's other stickers that I've been sending out. Just Shoot me a tweet. Uh, shoot us an email at RadioTFS at Outlook.com. Say, give me some stickers and give me your address and we'll get you some stickers. I'll get them to you if you're in North America or Martin will give them to you if you're in Europe. Uh, we'll, we'll give them to you and your team. And that that is because we truly can't do this without you. So if we can thank you by sending you some stickers, then it's a perfect world. Ladies and gentlemen, and again, thank you for coming on. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Radio TFS. 